I've just been handed this bulletin. So I, uh, I announced that we grew in our membership, but there's another way to grow a church. At 4.21 a.m. this morning, Bree and Brandon Jones welcomed writer Isaiah Jones into the world. So we're growing in many ways. Here's the score. Uh, he was 5.17 pounds, 17 inches long, and we are going to have a food train for him. So see Emily Davis about that. If you don't know who that is, uh, ask at the, uh, at the table out front and we'll, we'll direct you to her. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this awesome news, and we, uh, we celebrate with Bree and Brandon in, the, in the, uh, this, this new life that has come into the world, and uh, little writer. And Father, we thank you as well for this opportunity we have this morning to come into your presence and to hear from you. And Lord, you know, quite often I have said over the last few weeks to buckle up because this is a uh, can be a difficult book and uh, can be a convicting time, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And when it comes to conviction and difficulty, this is probably one of the more difficult passages what we're going to be looking at today. I, I can't imagine anybody here in this room who hasn't been touched by divorce. And yet, Father, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your truth. And so, Lord, would you uh, enlighten us and Lord, can, we'll, can we be encouraged, and we will be encouraged this morning as we hear what you have to say to us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer, and we look forward to what you have to say to us today. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Yeah, buckle up. Uh, in about 700 B.C., the Chinese began a massive construction project, took them 300 years, and it ultimately resulted in the 13,000-mile-long Great Wall of China. And there it is. Uh, Jackie and I went there, and I found a panda bear on the wall, climbing the wall, and I brought her home with me. So, uh, but the Great Wall of China was built... By the, by the Chinese so that they could keep the invaders from the north from getting to them. And they built it tall, tall enough so that nobody could get over it. And they built it thick and wide. And boy, it is. To this day, it's still a pretty imposing structure. And they built it wide so that nobody could crash through. And then after they had finished it, you could say that they sort of sat back and, and felt good about the fact we are secure now. We are safe. The problem was in the first, it, it is recorded that in the first hundred years of the completed Great Wall of China, China was invaded three times in a hundred years. Now, the people didn't come over the wall and they didn't crash through the wall. What they did was, was they bribed a guard at the gate and walked right in. And you see, what they, had, what they had planned on was that the integrity, the structural integrity of this wall was going to keep them safe, but they didn't consider the integrity of their people. The integrity of their people to keep them safe, to not be uh, driven by self-gain, to, 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 to think more of their country than they would of themselves. So what is this idea of integrity? We talk about structural integrity, how strong things are, but there's an integrity where we talk about in relation to us. 
And, and it's defined as steadfast adherence to moral values and truth. In other words, integrity is more than just telling the truth. It's actually doing what we say we're going to do. Integrity means that I keep my word. It means that my words and my actions agree. In other words, we practice what we preach. Back in 1993, there was a movie that came out called Indecent Proposal. I'm sure some of you remember it. And the, the uh, premise of this movie was that this rich guy goes to this young couple and says, I want to spend the night with your wife and I'll give you a million dollars for it. And it began a conversation in our country, what would you do for a million dollars? In fact, I remember one guy telling me one time that this guy offered his gal a, a million dollars to spend the night with him, and she said, uh, okay. And then afterwards, she, he said, well, you know what? Let me, let me think about this. Would you, would you spend the night with me for $20? And she said, absolutely not. What kind of a girl do you think I am? And his answer was, well, I, we know what kind of a girl you are. Now we're just negotiating the price. Ouch. In 1991, James Patterson and Peter Kim did a study entitled The Day America Told the Truth. And they asked U.S. citizens a number of questions. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? And here were the results in 91. I would not be surprised if it's worse today. But in 1991, for $10 million, 25% of people answering would abandon their entire family. 25% would certainly abandon their church. 23% would become prostitutes for a week or more. 16% would give up their American citizenship. 16% would leave their spouse. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% would murder a stranger themselves. And 3% would put their children up for adoption. And again, I'm thinking today these numbers are probably low. But if you're like me, maybe none of this surprises you. The question is... What would you do for 10 million? What would you do for 20? Either way, we know what kind of person you are. It's just a matter of negotiating the price. And what Jesus is doing here, as we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, is he is calling his disciples, check that, he's calling us, okay? He's calling us back to a life of integrity and a life of character. And when you say that you are a follower of God, it has to be more than just your words. It needs to be seen in your actions. And right from the beginning of this sermon, the focus was on what? It was on character. It was on those things that come out of you. Blessed are those who are the peacemakers, who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who are merciful, and on and on. And from there, he moved on to talk about our impact in this world. We, as salt, we preserve this decay world. We make people thirsty for what we have in Jesus Christ. Our, the light of our character would become so obvious that it would shine in the darkness even more so as the world becomes light, uh, darker around us. Now, since this sounded like new teaching to them, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus seemed to be countering what they had already been taught so many in, in the Old Testament. He emphasized that I did not come to abolish the law. No, I have come as the fulfillment of the law. 
The law points to Jesus Christ, the way and the truth and the life, as John 14, 6 says. And then he said an amazing thing to them, which no doubt shocked them. He said, for I say to you, unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And many, no doubt, wondered and still wonder today, how is that possible? And then he went on to explain just how it's possible. So take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 531. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. As we've been seeing in chapter 5, and we will continue to see, over the course of this chapter, six times Jesus is going to use this figure of speech where he will say, you have heard, but I say. And what he's doing in each case is he's presenting the traditional standard but he's presenting it so that he can build upon that an even higher standard. And when it comes to the law, rather than abolishing the law, rather than letting people off the hook of the law, he kind of sets the hook in deeper. We've already seen that just last week with murder and adultery. And what do we come up, what, what, what do we conclude? We're all murderers. We're all adulterers. It's not like I, I didn't get away from the law. The law is all the more prevalent. And today he's going to continue with two, I, I believe, even more difficult topics than even murder and adultery. The first of which, well, both of, the, both of them actually involve our integrity or lack of it. And the first one is this, keeping your promise in marriage, keeping your marriage promise or your marriage vows. Look at verse 31 of Matthew 5. He continues with this same figure of speech. Now, it was said, Jesus is speaking, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, right there, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching. In fact, there were two main schools of thought based upon what Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24 when he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her away from his house. Now the issue as the scribes and the Pharisees looked at this over and tried to determine what is he talking about here? What is Moses saying? At issue was that phrase, some indecency. If you were a conservative rabbi, then that, that, that statement meant only adultery, only stepping out on your husband. The liberals, on the other hand, said that it was anything that displeased the man. And in a culture where women were pretty much property, a divorce was pretty easy to obtain. My wife burned the toast. Get a divorce, okay? And for some, for many people in, those, in that camp, they would see this passage as just the paperwork. Now, I don't know why we should be surprised at that because that's kind of the way it is with us today. Things haven't changed all that much. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching. But remember... Jesus said that our righteousness is to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So this is what you've heard. What does Jesus say? Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Now, the religious leaders permitted easy divorce and fairly easy remarriage after that. Jesus' response is rather simple. He says here, marriage should be permanent. Divorce shouldn't be an option except for the reason of sexual immorality. If that reason doesn't exist, Jesus says you are an adulterer. So just what is this sexual immorality that he talks about? Some of your versions will say marital unfaithfulness, fornication. The word is pornea, and it can mean a few things. It can mean one act of adultery. It could mean unfaithfulness during the betrothal period. That's what Mary and Joseph would have been accused of. There's a, it could mean an illegitimate marriage that maybe after uh, you got married, you realized that the, the person you're married to is a relative and you didn't know that beforehand. It could mean continued unfaithfulness, certainly. No matter which one of these is true, all of these are examples of the fact that the marriage union has been broken by being unfaithful with another person. Now, keep your fingers here in this part of Scripture, but I would encourage you to turn over in Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew 19, we get a little more insight on this. Uh, starting in verse 3, Jesus is going to have this exchange between himself and the Pharisees about this topic. Verse 3 of chapter 19, he says this, Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now notice right off the bat what they're doing here. They're not asking Jesus as if they're trying to get enlightenment. It says here they are testing him. In other words, they're not serious. They only want to argue with Jesus. Even worse, they want to trap him. They're not, they're not really interested in finding out what Jesus has to say because their minds are already made up. They figured that this divorce debate, which was burning as hot then as it is today, will trap Jesus. You see, if Jesus says that uh, divorce can't happen, if he condemns divorce, then he's going to be contradicting what we saw Moses write in Deuteronomy. On the other hand, if he supports divorce, then he would be supporting the very Pharisees that he says are those that we are supposed to have be more righteous than. Either way... The guys that are asking the question figure this is a gotcha question that will, well, will cause his, his uh, disciples to turn away from him. Now, of course, Jesus turns the tables on them. He's pretty good at this. And in verse 4, it says, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no person separate. Now, Jesus is using here a common debate technique. He is arguing from the weightier text, an argument that from creation would have been considered weightier than one that came from the law because creation came first. So it is the, it's the, the stronger argument. And the Pharisees, you see, saw marriage and divorce primarily as a contract, a legal or a business transaction, kind of like buying land. And again, if you've probably heard, women in those days were pretty much treated like property. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, let's look at the original intent that God had for marriage. The original intent is that these two people are no longer two people in some kind of a contract. They are physically one. 
And when that happens, it is a unity that no one should separate. Now, the Pharisees at this point are probably thinking, yes, we've got him. We, we, we let him walk right into our trap. It sounds like now he is saying that Moses wrote a law that is contrary to God's command, and that would be heresy. We've got him. Jesus is on the way out now. Look what he says in verse 7. They said to him, well, this is the Pharisees, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus answers in verse 8. He says to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. You see, divorce, he says, was permitted under the law because of sin. From the very beginning, people divorced. Why? Because God is merciful, even though his ideal is not divorce. His ideal for all kinds of things that we do is not what we do, right? All kinds of behaviors. And the fact is, guys, the law of Moses was actually a step forward in civil rights for women. When people talk to you about how how the Bible is anti-woman, don't believe them. We'll get into this a little bit in the the series I'm going to start next week after church. The Bible brought civil rights to women because of Moses' law A man could no longer just throw a woman out for no reason at all. He had to actually write out a formal letter of dismissal, which then would allow her to ultimately remarry and to claim her dowry. That's the the price that the family gave for her marriage, which she would otherwise have lost that. And notice the the Pharisees' misunderstanding. You might have missed this one. They said in verse 7 that Moses commanded divorce. And what does Jesus do? He corrects them. He says, no, 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 no. Moses permitted divorce under these circumstances. And then he repeats what he says back in Matthew 5, 32, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So obviously this is bringing up a lot of questions and no doubt a bit of heartache for many, if not most of us in this room. Because we've been touched by divorce, some of us very personally, some of us uh, by, by extension, there are many victims of divorce. Sometimes a spouse has abandoned the marriage. That's, oftentimes there was nothing they could do. If you've had a divorce, the question I'm sure that might be in your mind right now, am I forever wearing this scarlet letter? Am I forever tarnished? Do I have to live in celibacy or be in sin? P- people dis- disagree on this. But here's my answer as I see it in God's word. Number one, Jesus said, you commit adultery. You don't live in adultery. And I think that is an important distinction. Guys, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Adultery is not even the unpardonable sin. Not accepting Christ as your savior, that's the unpardonable sin. That's the only sin that Jesus cannot forgive. Think about it. Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. What does he say to her? After straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they, those who condemned you? And she said, "Uh, No one is here, Lord. And Jesus said, Well, I don't condemn you either. Go from here and sin no more. That's John 8, 1 through 11. I would encourage you to write that down in your notes and and check check on that before life group this week. Guys, we have all missed the mark. We are all sinners. And furthermore, based on what Jesus said last week, 
We're all murderers and we're all adulterers. That's who we are in this room right now. I mean, think of some of the biblical examples of sexual sin. You've got David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. Here's David, the man after God's own heart, and yet has that kind of behavior in his background. And then there's the woman at the well that we read of in John chapter 4. Go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. That's true. You, you are correct when you say that. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Guys, we need to pray for God's wisdom on this issue. Now, it's true, we often in our society take divorce far too lightly, but at the same time, the church often judges and condemns those who have failed and those who have been victimized. I remember a phrase one time that I've never forgotten uh, by a, a pastor one time, and he said this, and I've sadly found it to be true, that the Christian army is an army that often shoots its own wounded I mean, when people are going through difficult times, nobody looks forward to a divorce or an abortion or, or, or any of the, the, the things that, that our society is, is hung up with these days. But it doesn't help when we make, when we make uh, enemies out of those who are in those situations. How should we behave? I love what Paul gives us in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He says, brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, here's what we do. Do we banish them from the church? Do we excommunicate them? Do we tell them we can't be around you? You might rub off on us. No. He says, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. And then I love this. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Guys, we are to be there for each other. In 1 John 1, 9, John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. That means all of our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means all unrighteousness. He restores that relationship with those who have struggled, with those who have slipped and fallen. Dare we do any less? Uh, as I say, there are differing opinions. Now you've got mine. <laughs> Of course, the best thing to do is to not go through a divorce in the first place. If you've made a commitment, if you've made a promise, if you've made a vow, and maybe you're in a situation right now, I wouldn't doubt there's a few here that are in situations right now where you don't know if you're going to be able to, to get through this. J Jackie and I went through that. There was a period of time when, when we, we compared notes years later and realized that at the same time, we both didn't really want to be married to each other anymore. But we had made a commitment and we stuck it out and now it's the best marriage in this room, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the ideal that he's given to us is to demonstrate integrity and keep it. Now, we've all messed up in various ways, either, either in our marriages or in other ways in our lives. We have all had, have suffered from a lack of integrity and you're not, you're not lost forever. You can get it back because God is a God of mercy and grace. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's continue on to where Jesus goes next in this whole issue, uh, which I, I think the overarching uh, issue here is integrity. So having integrity in your marriage. And the second one we get here is that your word is your bond. 
Your word is your bond, which simply means you keep, you, you know, when I say something, you don't have to have, a, you know, a, 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 a po- you don't have to post a bond to ensure that I'm going to carry it out. You can trust the fact that I said it, it's going to get done. Verse 33, Jesus says again, you have heard, here's the fourth time, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, there's some interesting background uh, to this one as well. The Pharisees had developed, remember I told you of the hundreds of laws that they had developed out of the law? And they had made elaborate rules governing when you were bound by your words and when you weren't. For instance, if you were to swear by Jerusalem, then you were bound to carry that out. But if you were to swear towards Jerusalem, well, then you're not bound. You could say, you know what, never mind. If I use God's name in my promise, there's no, no question on this. You're bound by it. And so what would they do? Avoid using God's name. And they began to swear by anything that sounded like it might mean something but was short of meaning something having to do with God. There was even a rule book I read that, that talked about the vows you had to keep and the vows you didn't have to keep. Remember, the scribes were the lawyers, And so they figured out ways around what God's word had told them to say. Now, before we, uh, you know, laugh at them or or feel superior to them, do any of these little phrases sound familiar? Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Oops, sorry, I had my fingers crossed when I said that. Or I will swear on a stack of Bibles. If I'm lying, I'm dying. May lightning strike me if I am not telling the truth, as God is my witness. Now, why do we say things like this? Oaths are necessary, guys, when people question our integrity, when there's a possibility that I am lying. And that's where Jesus goes with this. Let's continue with verse 34. He says, but I say to you, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it's the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. You see, again, they thought if they avoided using God's name that they weren't bound by the promise that they were making. And so these are actual things that they would swear by. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, my own head. And what is Jesus pointing out here? That even these oaths are binding because they all come from God. I mean, that was their rule, was that if it's connected to God, then you've got to tell the truth. Well, Jesus is correctly saying everything's connected to God. And we just need to keep our word. What's his answer to them? Well, it's simple. Don't make oaths. So your words should be solid. A simple yes or no should be enough. Your word is your bond. And that's what he says in verse 37. Make your statement. Yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil origin. You're trying to get around it. You're trying to figure out a a way to, uh, to violate what you have promised to do. And once again, guys, this all goes back to our character, to our integrity. Our words depend on our character. And an oath cannot compensate, trust me, for poor character or a lack of integrity. In fact, the more words that a person uses, the more suspicious we should be. You ever watched uh, politicians get asked a simple yes or no question? It's, It's funny. The answer I never hear them give is yes or no. 
Sometimes it's comical because the guy asking the question after the third time, and they say, well, Senator, let me tell you, <laughs> and they go into this long, and the guy says, would you just answer yes or no? Well, Senator, it seems to me that they, they go off on something else. That's a clue that something's going on here. Parents, you may have uh, read to your kids the book, Horton Hatches the Egg. Remember Horton Hatches the Egg? where uh, Horton agreed that he would uh, sit on the, on the, 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 uh, the nest. He would sit on this egg for Lazy Maisie, the bird. And as he's sitting on this nest, and the weather is bad, and there's all kinds of things happening, and Horton's friends come by, and they say, Horton, you should get off that nest. You, don't, you, you, know, you, you're not, you wouldn't be expected to stay you know, on something like this with all the struggles you're going through. And what does Horton say? He says, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant is faithful 100%. Imagine what God could do with a believer that had that kind of commitment, that had that kind of integrity. And you might be saying, like I am, too late. <laughs> I've already blown it. I've blown it big times in some cases. I've made promises that I haven't kept. I've done things that I'm not proud of. I have good news for you. Because the ultimate example for us is Jesus himself. It's one of those times, I know we joke about, you know, the, the Christian answer is Jesus. Well, this is one of those times when it really is. Think about what Jesus promised as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and how difficult his promise had to be. Let me read it for you. Just listen to this. Mark 14, 32 says, they came to a place named Gethsemane. We're going uh, to be looking into this as we come into the, the Easter season and Good Friday. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground, and he began praying that if it were possible the hour might pass by. He wouldn't have to go to the cross, Lord, if, if that's possible. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then says those famous words, yet not what I will, but what you will. Guys, Jesus said that he would suffer on the cross. And he did. And that's integrity. He said he would die for us. And he did. And that's integrity. And because of that, when he says he will return for me and for us, I know he's going to do it. How do I know this? Because of his integrity. Because everything he said he would do, he has done. And guys, if you struggle with integrity, either in your marriage or in your speech, well, then join the club, because we all do. But this morning... The good news is that in Christ, I can be that person of integrity through the power of his Holy Spirit within me. And all of us can enjoy that. Because we all struggle in our own strength. But what did Paul, the Apostle Paul, say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? If anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What does it mean to be in Christ? 
to know Christ as your Savior and to follow him as your Lord. Let me give you a couple of takeaways for what we have here this morning. I, I, I look at this passage and I ask myself, number one, is Jesus being too severe for me? Is this a, is this a bridge too far? I mean, he's, he's, we, we jokingly say buckle up and this, this is tough, but this is tough. And I know that some of us are, are, are reacting severely to this. Be honest with him. Be honest with yourself. Ask yourself that question. Is this, is, is Jesus, are you being too severe? Is this too much? Secondly, am I considered a person of integrity? Is my word my bond? Do people, when they hear me say something, when I say something to them, do they take that as the truth or do they wonder if I'm really, really going to do that? And then thirdly, and probably the most important question out of this, am I a new creation in Christ? Because if I am, then everything he's talking about, no matter whether I've messed up, no matter whether I, I'm, I, I continue to walk that way, I can be a person of integrity. This morning, allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Turn over every part of your life to him. Yield yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, wherein to excess, which leads to debauchery, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And as we do that, we will carry out the desires of the Spirit rather than the desires of the flesh. Allow Him to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And with God, this is an immediate thing. Now, with Him, it's an immediate thing. If we've screwed up, if we've get, gotten a reputation, I remember my dad used to say, you know, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation, and it takes only, you know, a moment to destroy it. And you can then get it back. Maybe you've struggled in keeping your word. Maybe you've struggled in your marriage. And maybe these aren't what they should be. But through Christ, you can rebuild those relationships. There's some amazing testimonies that people have told. The Apostle Paul was a persecutor of the church. When he came to know Christ, nobody wanted to have anything to do with Paul. It took years for them to get to the place where they could actually trust themselves to be around him, that he wasn't going to attack them or come at them. So it may take time, but it can be done. Trust me, eventually others will recognize that when you open your mouth like Horton, you meant what you said and you said what you meant. You are faithful 100%. Through Christ, we can experience that. Amen? A tough passage but a tremendous promise that he gives to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. And again, Lord, I know this is hard for, for many of us to hear. And yet, Father, you never give us a standard or a command that you don't also give us the means to carry out that standard and to carry out that command. And Lord, you are a God of, of mercy and a God of grace. You stand ready and willing and anxious and able to not only forgive me, but to restore me. And Father, as you've told us in your word and can continue to tell us in your word, we are to extend that same mercy and grace to others. And so may this be a body of Christ that is graceful, that is merciful, where everybody can experience truly what it means to be loved and adored by God and by God's people. Father, this morning, I would pray that whatever it is that we're struggling with, 
we would admit what it is to you and maybe even to some others if that's necessary. We would believe what your word has shown us today, that you stand ready and willing to, to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I pray that we would make that choice intentionally. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Lord, come into my life. Change me. Make me the person that you want me to be. Because, Father, it's not about what I have done. It's about what you have done and continue to do in our lives. May that characterize Crosswinds Church and may the people in our worlds see that difference and want that for themselves in a world that doesn't offer much mercy or grace. In fact, none. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.